Hello and welcome to In Control, the first podcast on control theory. Here we discuss the science of feedback, decision making, artificial intelligence, and much more. I'm your host, Alberto Padoan, live from a recording studio at ETH Zurich. Quick thanks to our sponsor, the National Center of Competence in Research on Dependable Ubiquitous Automation, which you can check following the link in the description. Our guest today is Sean Main. Sean is a professor and a Robert C. Pittman Eminent Scholar Chair at the University of Florida. And welcome to the show, Sean. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I, I don't know where to start. There are many, many ways to start the show. I guess one interesting question for our audience would be, how did your career start? Uh, what's your personal perspective on your personal research trajectory, if you want? You've been uh-huh. bouncing back and forth between many topics. Mm. In doing my homework, I found out that you worked on Markov Chains, you wrote the Bible, <laughs> effectively what is in the Bible on Markov Chains, then mm-hmm. power systems, then uh, queuing systems to RL. So uh, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> right, right, right. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, you think about, I mean, I started as a math major and I was, I mean, just was obsessed with mathematics. I loved it. And then I remember, I'm really proud of this moment in my senior year when I thought I don't want to be an artist in an empty room. And I, lit- <laughs> I literally thought that at the time. And I went and thought I have to get out of math. Because, <laughs> you know, just the isolation, you know. And uh, so I went to the guidance counselor in engineering and said, if you want to just do math but be an engineering, where do you go? <laughs> and they said, communications are control. And after applying to a bunch of universities, it wasn't so easy, you know, just, I knew nothing about electrical engineering. I uh, ended up getting a phone call from Peter Keynes at McGill. And he just convinced me within moments that Montreal was my destiny. Okay. What was the topic of your research? And that's the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so I got through all, you know, catching up on signals and systems, basic electrical engineering topics. But then the topic was what's called adaptive control, which is the same sort of message as reinforcement learning, you know, that you're going to have a black box that's going to be intelligent and control any system. And unfortunately, the math was so unattractive <laughs> and also at the same time, George Zames was there. Now, George Zames wow. is this famous control theorist. Yeah. And he was very much, he had a vision of what control should be, and adaptive control was not part of it. And so that also had an influence on me in thinking, adaptive control is just not for me. He's doomed somehow. Uh, yeah, it, which is terrible. I mean, he, you know, he was close minded too. He was a brilliant man, but he very narrow. Uh-huh. But so I found my escape by. Um, converting the problem into Markov processes. Okay. And so I ended up doing my entire dissertation was really mainly on Markov processes and stability of Markov chains. So you're serving me many assists. First of all, I would probably tell the audience who James is well known for. I mean, he's absolutely one of the pioneers of robust control. And I can think of so many concepts like the Mm -hmm. gap metric, for example, is one of them. But It's interesting. He's a brilliant teacher. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that he had such an opposing view towards adaptive control, which is now regaining, I would say, popularity due to the explosion of reinforcement learning in the field of machine learning. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can talk about your excursion into the world of Markov chains. Mm -hmm. I mean, here I just Mm -hmm. wrote a note on a review that Nobel Prize winner Thomas Sargent from New York University. Number Prize in Economic Sciences has on Amazon. The book is Markov Chains and Stochastic Stability, a classic from 1993. And so Thomas Sargent says, Sean Main's earlier book with Tweedy is the Bible for economists. This is quite a compliment <laughs> from a Nobel Prize winner who used Markov models to do everything from formulating asset pricing models to constructing Bayesian posteriors for dynamic models. This book is a gold mine and of useful new ideas. I predict that the ideas in chapter 11 alone will have a big impact on the way we think about computing rational expectation equilibria. So did that happen actually? Yeah, so actually he's reviewing a book on networks. Yes, it's the second book, right? The second book. And and yes, actually I met Tom Sargent because I got into power systems and the economic side Uh right after the California power crisis when there was this big, you know, the big scandals happened. 
That would be another podcast, <laughs> my discussions with economists over the last 20 years. But yeah, he and I got to be friends, and he loved the work on reinforcement learning that was in that chapter. Chapter 11 is mainly about simulation and reinforcement learning. Okay. And the disasters, actually, I had with it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you the, mean by that? Well, the chapter basically shows how the variance just overwhelms these algorithms. and makes it very hard to train. Okay. So it's a big disappointment for me, chapter 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, are, are there any new developments in that direction at the moment? Well, you know, it's funny. You know, RL, for the deterministic systems like chess and Go, you know, yep. where everything's nailed down, in dynamical deterministic systems, it seems to really often work well. But when you have randomness with memory, like in queuing networks and things, yep. it's incredible how that memory compounds itself and makes these algorithms so slow to tune. And so far, I haven't figured out anything except train on a model with less variability and just hope <laughs> for the best. You know, it's a, So perhaps yeah. let's uh, take a yeah. step back and maybe you can help me with an analogy. So yeah. what is a Markov chain? I heard you yeah. complaining about the definition of Markov chains in uh, other talks uh, that I followed uh, from you, say, over the course of certain conferences. For example, you mentioning the one listed on Wikipedia is not the right one, uh, or at least uh, it's not. <laughs> How funny. <laughs> and so I'm curious, so what is a Markov chain and why are they useful? Ten years ago, when you went to Wikipedia, it said a, a Markov chain is a chain with certain features. I mean, this is <laughs> meaningless. So now somebody's fixed it. You know? So unfortunately, does the audience know what a state-space model is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty yeah. hopeful that they will know. That's right. So all it is is a state-space model in a stochastic setting. So it's a sequence, in discrete time, a sequence of, say, random vectors. And the random, if you want to predict have a the best estimate of the future uh, evolution of the of the state process uh, given the present and the past you can disregard the past yes yeah so the state is a sufficient statistic for any kind of prediction and so it's yeah it's a, a generalization of a dynamical system and, yeah. and so in skimming through the book also to prepare this episode i learned about the interesting history of markov Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> the mathematician yeah. Andrei Markov, yeah. who actually sparked this whole line of research. And I found that he was dubbed Andrew the Furious, uh -huh. or oh, yeah, the, yeah. the militant academician <laughs> uh, back in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. So why are these models so useful? I mean, in control, it's just a absolutely dogmatic that once you have a state description, you can write down optimality equations for optimal control, that's number one. And in terms of simulation, it's so useful to say, all I need to know is the current state, and I can then draw the next state through simulation in a very simple way. If I had to know the entire history of the process to generate the next sample, it'd be incredibly complex for simulation. So those are two examples, you know, you can go on. And then there's all these beautiful limit theory for Markov processes and Markov chain. For me, a Markov process means continuous time. Uh -huh. um, you know, okay. Other people have different definitions. It's just it's such a rich theory of understanding probabilities of rare events and trying to estimate means of random variables, things like that. And so I'm trying to envision how did you do the jump from focusing your research studies on Markov processes mm -hmm. to networks of them? What was oh, yeah. the, the event that sparked your interest into networks of these kind of models? So after my PhD, I had a postdoc in the Australian National University. And a funny thing that when I defended my thesis... Michael Kaplan, who was in communications, he complimented the thesis, but he said, why is there no reference to Richard Tweedy? <laughs> it's because I didn't know. I'm sorry, Richard. And <laughs> you know, back then, you had to go to the library and, and shuffle through books to get, you know, there was, yeah. there was no Google Scholar. And uh, it was amazing that then I had my postdoc at the Australian National University, and he was in Brisbane. And there's a funny story about how we met, So, but I won't get into that. So anyway, so that's how the book got started, as a meeting there. Because I'd already had signed a contract with Springer, and he had already started a book, so we put our things together. Okay. But then Brian Anderson, who is you know, this guru in control. Who was Another the giant of, of the field. Yeah, yeah. He told me, hey, you know, you're going to Illinois, because I accepted a position as a faculty member at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And he said, you know, it'd be a really good idea for you to launch into QE networks. You've got the background. 
And Pierre Kumar is there, who's <laughs> another, another, another giant, giant. <laughs> incredible giant. And so I took his advice, which is rare for me. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I ended up um, being completely baby, not knowing anything about queuing networks and just pushing myself to, to learn about this in part to collaborate with so, Kumar. Yeah. I'm curious. So what, what does the control point of view add to the theory of queuing networks? Oh, my God. Now, here's <laughs> where, I mean, I can get emotional, you know. <laughs> it's I'm, just that... Yeah, it's again, it's this discussion about the unique point of view of control, mm -hmm. you know, culture. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you look at the operations research and the way queuing theory had gone forever, it's like you come up with a very complex, I mean, fairly complex model of a queuing model, yeah. queuing system. You know, a queuing system means there's a bunch of buffers, customers come to buffers, and the decision making about which buffer to serve and where to route them. And then they go and try to compute things exactly. And so, the model's complex, but not that complex, because they have to be simple enough that you can compute things. And if you don't know anything about Markov chains, I'm sorry, but Markov chains, their distribution tend to converge to a steady state. And sort of the goal of queuing theory had been, let's compute the steady state, let's approximate it. But a control theorist comes in and says, what are you talking about? We don't know anything about distributions. We don't know a model very well. We don't know anything. Let's get a simpler model and figure out how to control it using a simple model and get maybe a parameterized family of decision rules and then take real data and tune it online to get the best solution within in some class we've cooked up. Again, intuition based on a naive model. And I think Kumar might have been the first to really sort of push that point of view in the community. It was quite exciting. And then I went further and pushed that point of view. And that was the first time I thought I could actually do something useful. <laughs> you know? Achieving your dream as a young mathematician. Well, I, I did, yeah, exactly. I never thought I'd do anything useful. And then suddenly <laughs> I thought, wow, this intuition about this control point of view is really cool. The thing is, I went too far. So I really got excited about these fluid models. Yeah. So I, I was yeah. about to mention yeah. that. So one, that is one of the core yeah. concepts of the book. So mm -hmm. maybe yeah. before we talk about it, we launched into the topic of queuing systems, but what is a queue, actually? Yeah, <laughs> what, right. what is a model yeah. of a queue? Mm -hmm. Like the simplest queue is called the MM1 queue. Yeah. And Classic. you can describe it in discrete time is that you've got this bucket that holds a discrete number of objects. And with probability, they call it alpha. <laughs> a, 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 a block falls into this bucket. And with probably mu, a block falls out. <laughs> yeah. And when it's empty, it doesn't go negative. It just is empty until it waits for another block to fall in. Yeah. And it's a very nice Markov chain. It has all sorts of beautiful properties. Yes. But it's also diabolical as well. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you say it's diabolical? <laughs> What's amazing is, again, this is maybe too advanced, but we know everything about it. We know it's steady state. We know how quickly it converges to steady state. But suppose we didn't know that, and we tried to estimate things through simulation. So we maybe want, we wanted to estimate the mean, and we look at the sample path average. So you basically look at the queue length over a time horizon of a thousand, and average the queue length over that time horizon. Yeah. Well, you can do that for a thousand, a million, a billion, and it's so slow to converge. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's just incredible variance, and that's the problem. When you try to use RL, yes. it gets compounded, that, that variance. <laughs> I guess we're going to get there uh, yeah. fairly quickly, but I thought yeah. it would be nice yeah. to uh, maybe spend a couple of minutes on what is this concept of the fluid model? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So here, all right, so the, the reason it was... I think it's a beautiful concept. Yeah, it was, well, it was really big. So queuing networks was big in the um, late 80s, early 90s, because semiconductor manufacturing was going crazy. And they wanted to figure out how to handle, you know, scheduling these awful, massive, complex networks. It's interesting. I didn't know this. Uh, I mean, this was, was the driving force. Yeah, that was the driving force with okay. semiconductor manufacturing. And the thing is that the uncertainty there, it's not like an M1Q. I mean, the time to finish a job is, is fairly deterministic. Um, the problem is, it's just like disruptions because something breaks down or there's a, a shock from a new order or some canceled okay. order. It's, it's completely outside of the way of, um, people in operations research think about these models. And so anyway, so that's a setting. And there's no way you could come up with a model of that that would be tractable for getting intuition about control solutions. So especially with these sort of shock-type disturbances, it's so reasonable to come up with a, just an ordinary differential equation and pretend that 
the jobs just smoothly flow in. And when you decide to work on a bucket, instead of these blocks, you just smoothly jobs, you know, liquid flowing out. And then you can get all sorts of structure for the, the solution to that problem. And then you can model shocks and you can model reaction to shocks and you can really get elegant intuition. Then there's a translation step. You know, once you get all this insight for this fluid model, how do you translate? There was a lot of really pretty math to do that as well. I was told you should get a patent. This is valuable by some people. Other people laughed at me. And when I went to industry, I was so naive. I thought you could talk about the insight from these idealized models. And I remember being told by somebody, like some CEO or something, tell us it's based on fuzzy logic and we'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Because fuzzy logic was super popular I guess time, so. Right? I, I, I guess. I guess. I don't know. Oh, my God. But, you, you know, you had to say it yeah. was something, you know, today you'd have to say it's, I don't it's know, deep learning. learning. Yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I, I did learn quickly, so I kept my mouth shut. And I did. <laughs> I went to a lot of, sort of industry meetings, you know, which was really weird for me. <laughs> and then the economy crashed. This was the late 90s. <laughs> Yeah, this is super interesting. <laughs> yeah. uh, just a quick question about how do you model shocks? I do have an intuition for that. Yeah. But would you model oh. shocks in, let's say, a fluid model? Oh, yeah, that's the best. It's made for that, you know, because you can, you know, basically something, you basically, when there's a shock, your state suddenly jumps. Uh -huh. and there's so nothing, it's a hybrid system, as yeah, we would call it. Yeah, or, yeah. And, I, and I don't need to have a statistical model of it when there's a shock. I mean, if I can predict it, I'll get ready. That's right. So if I'm given advanced warning, With a fluid model, it's very easy to come up with a, a optimal trajectory that gets you to the right position to be ready for the shock and then recover as fast as possible. And, you know, there's all these notions in queuing theory of hedging. So basically having extra safety stock or hedging to guard against shocks, you can put that in there. So it's not like you really believe it's a fluid model. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, you can include all those elements. But uh, there's no doubt it's valuable. And here's another funny anecdote. <laughs> so... My graduate student, who graduated a few years ago, was an intern for a company in Cambridge, England. And they were looking for somebody who knew something about supply chains and stuff. Okay. And he said, my advisor wrote a book. <laughs> and so I had a contract with this company, and I had a team building software to actually get this going finally. Well, fantastic. And then COVID and Boris Johnson came. <laughs> It's, so the software was written, a big team, everything, and then March of 2020, or you know, summer of 2020, wham, it's gone. So, so I'm not lucky in, in, in well, that. I was there. Uh, yeah, no, not super um, enthusiastic, but let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> We don't talk about politics yeah, on, on, on this sure, podcast. Sure. I see another jump, let's say, in your career. You said you started with adaptive control yeah. and somehow recently you went back or at least with new eyes in the um, sense of working on stochastic approximation and then yeah. uh, at least tangentially you went back uh, yeah. RL. And first of all, I, I find that it's incredibly cool to have a theorem in your name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Yes. Uh, the Borca mind uh, theorem. Uh, maybe we can talk about that, but mm -hmm. maybe we can talk about what is uh, stochastic approximation, how mm -hmm. did it originate, and um, what's the state of the art today? So that's the thing I should say. I've been so lucky, just I don't know how I'm so lucky having these wonderful co-authors. You know, so, so my first sabbatical, I got a Fulbright scholarship, which funded my family, my you know, two daughters, my ex-wife, to go to Bangalore, India. And the 90s, it was a paradise. That sounds super exciting. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was so terrifying. And when we landed in New Delhi, and I saw the pollution and the dangerous auto rickshaws, I thought, I've blown it. I made it such a mistake. But then we flew to Bangalore, and we're suddenly in this paradise. You know, just the most beautiful food, people, culture. It's incredible, the nature. It must be such a cultural shock, you know? It was terrifying. But then my daughters were like maybe 11 and 12, And they went to the Bangalore International School and just loved it. And it, the biggest mistake was leaving. We should have stayed until they were <laughs> until they were adults. <laughs> it was really, but yeah, so I didn't know Vivek really, but I knew his work. I really admired his work. And I wanted to learn more about stochastic approximation. And I also wanted to learn about a mathematical field called large deviations. And that was just a personal quest. I just thought it was an attractive looking field. And... Uh, I mean, without doing any work, I spent most of my time being on vacation with my daughters. 
<laughs> a, I gave a, a seminar on these fluid models. Okay. And Vivek Borker immediately said, holy shit, we could apply this to stochastic approximation for stability. And that's this famous paper I have with them on the Borker mind theorem. Yes, I mean, which is, we, we have to spend is, some if time If a fluid this. model is stable, then the stochastic algorithm is stable. Okay. Yeah, And that's a general principle. I mean, it's true for what's called stochastic approximation. And then I presented this to a colleague, a good friend, Eric Moulin in Paris. And he said, holy shit, we could apply <laughs> this to MCMC, Markov Chain Monte Carlo. Yeah. And the same thing holds. So if a fluid model is stable, then the Markov, this famous statistical algorithm called Markov Chain Monte Carlo is geometrically ergodic, <laughs> it's, you know, which is a very strong notion of stability of a Markov chain. Yeah. It's a wild uh, thing, you know, it's just... Uh, so, know, let's yeah. take a yeah. step back. Okay, so, yes. <laughs> what is stochastic approximation? Uh, Can we manage to convey this to an audience that is only listening? Yes, okay. I mean, I am familiar with the concept, but mm -hmm. it seems uh, also yeah. a bit of a challenge to, to convey, but we can try. Yeah, but I mean, let's try. It's hard without a blackboard, but I'm just going to be abstract at first. Yeah. I, I've got a... A function of some parameter that I'll call theta. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying to find a root, which means f of theta star equals zero. You know, it's yeah. a vector valued uh, function of this parameter theta. Theta is a d dimensional vector. And the trouble is we can evaluate f, but only with noisy observations. You know, but suppose it wasn't noisy. One thing you could do is treat this theta star as a Sorry, everybody, stationary point for an ordinary differential equation. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm hoping that our audience will be familiar with the notion of stationary point. Uh, yeah, so another dynamical, point di another dynamical system, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. yes. So the, the derivative of theta with respect to time mm -hmm. is f of theta t. And so if that thing's stable, then you've got an algorithm. This is an ODE, a fluid model yeah. approach to... Um, Uh, trying to solve a problem. We just had this workshop at ETH on dynamical systems for algorithm design. And yes, this is an example. Thanks again to our sponsor, the National Center of Competency in Research on Dependable Ubiquitous Automation, which <laughs> gave us the possibility to yeah. uh, meet and speak in person, which is great. Symposium was called Systems Theory of Algorithm. Uh, there will be videos online as well, so we'll post uh, some links uh, to them. Um, Absolute inspiration. It was a fantastic meeting. Yeah. I was um, trying to understand the origin of this ODE method as well. Yeah. So in doing some research, I found that is the first paper on the subject by Leonard Leung. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. So, so it's Robinson Monroe, you uh -huh. know, came up with this idea in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And what's amazing is that uh, Kai Lai Chung, this famous probabilist, okay. immediately jumped in And looked at variances, you know, how, what's the vol. So basically, yeah, so again, stochastic approximation is basically just an Euler scheme. So if you can't do an ODE, you could do an Euler approximation of an ordinary differential equation. But what Robinson McGraw point out, you can just slap in the noisy measurements of F. Don't take the real F that you can't evaluate, but take the noisy measurements. The noise doesn't hurt you, at least for convergence. In fact, but, you know, said another yeah, way, yeah. Uh, Euler discretization of an ODE is robust uh, to noise exactly. in some way. That's right. It's very yeah. robust to noise. But Kai Lai Chung then went and looked at the variance, and that's, that can be high. <laughs> so it can take a long time to converge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Actually, do you have an intuition for that? It, it depends on the step sizes, I suppose. It, oh, yeah. I've, got, I've spent 20 years of my life now studying this problem. Yes, and I, <laughs> it's hard. But it's a memory, again, you know, you've got, you know, the... the If, there's, there's, yeah, if the Euler step size is constant, it's a Markov chain, and it's a Markov chain with a lot of memory. Mm -hmm. And so that memory is what makes it slow to converge. And, uh -huh. yeah. and so in this context, what does the Borker-Mein theorem say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it I mean, it basically says that if that ordinary differential equation is stable a little more than stability in the sense that many people in control would, would understand, a little bit... Actually, no... It, It's hard, I, I can't say it in words, but you take F and you actually look at a simplification of it. And if that uh, ODE is globally asymptotically stable, then the stochastic algorithm is stable in the sense of boundedness. And once you have boundedness of these stochastic approximation algorithms, convergence is done. <laughs> Because Euler approximations are robust. It's, it's so easy now. 
and this has a lot of applications also on mm-hmm. many things that are quite popular at the moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is serving as a good assist to bridge towards RL, which is also the main subject of your latest book, right? Yes. With Cambridge University Press, it's mm-hmm. online. Yeah. People, we're going to put a link on that oh, in the notes. Nice. Thank you. And it's going to be in print in June. That's in next June. month, yeah, it's, which is very But exciting. It's also freely available on your website, That's right? That's right. Yeah. So, okay. Let's support uh, Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> Cambridge, England. University Press, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, what is RL and what's your journey in, in the field? Oh, I love it. This is where I really get into trouble. So, <laughs> I have evidence to, to support that. So, so, I've taught RL ever since my sabbatical in the 90s. You know, I, when I teach stochastic control, I always taught RL. And it was just, for me, it was a hobby, and, and students loved it. And it was a wonderful way to illustrate control concepts. But I had this wonderful student, Aditya Devaraj, who dragged me in to get back into this, you know, seven years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and when we wrote our, we had a, quite a breakthrough in what's called Q-learning, which I will not try to define. <laughs> and I told Aditya, we'll submit it to NURIPS. It was called NIPS at the time. But there's no way. <laughs> no, it's not it will, it will be blown up. There's no way that they'll accept this paper. And sure enough, it was rejected flat out. And there were two reviewers who said they were not, they didn't understand. They weren't experts. So they were, but one, one said, I'm an expert. It's ridiculous. There's no connection between Reinforcement learning and stochastic approximation. Wow. And what was his and argument? He said there's no, there's no connection. That's what he said. And, um, But based on what sort of evidence? He, he didn't say. Okay, he didn't say. And he said they're claiming that they can reduce variance, but there's no evidence. But we optimized the variance and we explained it. So luckily, these reviews are online forever. So it's, you can look, <laughs> it's, and so that's the trouble is that there's a disconnect. So reinforcement learning, so I mentioned in the beginning Markov chains are useful for control because you can set up these dynamic programming equations to try to come up with optimal decision rules for all sorts of things, like the semiconductor manufacturing or you know, plane chess, you know, all <laughs> sorts of things. And theory and practice is so d- divorced mm-hmm. that, that people work on algorithms and they fine-tune algorithms and they get a lot of empirical intuition. They do wonderful things but they don't read the scientific foundations at all. Uh, it's been known right after Watkins in Cambridge <laughs> came up with Q-learning. John Tsitsikilis at MIT immediately said, whoa, this is stochastic approximation. <laughs> so people like me, I mean, our, part of our motivation was, ooh, you know, this, this is fun application of stochastic approximation. Let's get into it. <laughs> so this is, you know, culture of scientists who are, who know that all these all sorts of algorithms are based in stochastic approximation and studied you know based on all those applications but i'd say that most successful people have ignored the theory <laughs> it's really just a, a sad state of affairs but uh, yeah. i mean we can yeah. we can go in so many directions from here yeah. um yeah i mean one very interesting point that I found in reading your book, which is delightful and a very delightful read, is that it's 400 pages long, mm-hmm. but the first 200 pages are only about deterministic RL. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, that was quite surprising. Too, yeah. Because the culture in, uh, in RL is to be stochastic. Yes. Always. Uh, we had a very interesting conversation with Ben Rector some time ago, mm-hmm. and where he was mentioning a quote coming from someone else saying that You shouldn't ask stochastics until you need it. Mm-hmm. And so one point was, well, actually, when do you need it? Yeah. When do you need to go stochastic? Yeah. That would be a question that I would ask you <laughs> as a oh, giant yeah. in the field. Well, that's So when I teach stochastic control, one of the first things I say is that I'm teaching stochastic control so you'll know you don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> And I say, of course, there are exceptions. You know, in finance, volatility is everything. You know, but in so many cases, it's, it's back to the fluid model idea. You pretend there's nothing, no disturbances. You get a family of decision rules based on the simpler model, and then you fine-tune it based on a more, a more realistic model, maybe using some statistical techniques like stochastic approximation or some formulation of RL, but that's a fine-tuning after you get a good policy. Now, that's a very eccentric viewpoint. You know, I mean, that's not mainstream at all. But to me, it seems obvious. And that's what I mean. I can get into a fight about that. But you know, <laughs> this is my personal beliefs. I'm not saying 
I've yeah, been wrong. I, mean, I, I admit I've been wrong before. <laughs> but you, you've yeah. also been right quite a few and times. And I've been right too, yeah. <laughs> the reason for going deterministic was mainly pedagogical. It's like I've taught this course so many times and the students are so frustrated because I'm making them learn about Markov chains. Then I make them learn about stochastic control. And then I make them learn about simulation invariance. And they're saying, please let us learn about RL. Please, can we get to RL? And so being able to just get to start, start out in a simple setting yeah. and expose the core ideas, it's so liberating. Yeah, it makes know. a lot of sense. Yeah. Actually, a quick question, a quick tangent yeah. with respect to what we just said. Did you ever get interested in finance applications? Yeah, I could have made a lot of money, I bet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I could have sold a lot with, of snake oil. Knowledge. I could have sold a lot of snake oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of those people who pretended you could solve all their problems with uh, actor-critic methods, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, got it. It would be fun if I didn't wasn't so sad about finance, you know what I mean? I, I, the power of Wall Street is really scary. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, um, but let me go back. So... You expose so many beautiful ideas by staying deterministic, but the power of stochastics is never, I mean, it's, it's one of the most amazing demonstrations of the power of probability theory is in reinforcement learning. And for me, the most beautiful collection of ideas was from John Tsitsikilis. You have Ben Van Roy's PhD thesis was on the geometry of what's called TD learning. And it's just uh, absolute poetry. And then... Ben Van Roy goes off to become a professor at Stanford, and here comes Kanda, Vijay Kanda, I think, who is a Vivek Borkar student. And the foundation that Ben Van Roy laid created all this, just, just what was needed for understanding what's called actor-critic methods. Mm -hmm. And there's no way, well, I don't think you can come with anything as beautiful without all the probabilistic tools. I, I might be missing something. But uh, it's, it's, it's really the insight and, and tools you have are incredible. Quick mention, uh, I don't yeah. think we have time to go in deep in depth in yeah, all yeah. of the RL well, yeah. methods that you just listed, but TD learning, actor-critic methods, they're all reinforcement learning methods. They're mm -hmm. quite popular, perhaps not necessarily in control, but certainly in machine learning. Yeah. I want to take a step back again and maybe go back to your book. Uh, there are some really interesting quotes that I would like to mention, uh -huh. at least from, from my perspective. So one of them is where you write, don't remember in which chapter, but you write, it is surprising that there was so little energy in the 80s and 90s between RL and adaptive control. Mm -hmm. There was significant outreach in one direction. Notable examples include the surveys of by Sutton, like learning and sequential decision making and mm -hmm. reinforcement learning is direct adaptive optimal control. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, <laughs> Can you comment funny. on... Yeah, well, that's what was tough. Like when I was a grad student, there was this sort of monolithic. There was, you know, the, there was people in, in control theory worked in the George Zames Empire, which was robust control, or the Carl Astrom Empire, Peter Kokodovich and others in adaptive control. And we didn't have fast computers, you know, so we didn't have any kind of reality to test against. I mean, of course, there were some control people who really got into practice. Mainly it was theory that everyone cared about. And again, there were these two monoliths. And so anybody who was a little outside of that was ignored. <laughs> I mean, not completely. I mean, Johnson Sickless wasn't completely ignored, but his influence on adaptive control was zero, which is terrible loss. It's surprising, you know, yeah. really surprising. Um, and there, there are just a few exceptions. You know, Frank Lewis in Texas has been, you know, pushing... RL for control for forever, but that's like one exception that you know proves the rule. Um, and yeah. so I'm curious, what was your reaction yeah. when you saw the resurgence of interest in uh, in, in RL and also like you yeah. know motivated by this drive and computing power? I would say. Yeah, I mean, so when I first heard about the chess success, I thought it was fraud. I just couldn't believe it, because I mean, talk about searching for a needle in a haystack. But then I saw a tutorial by David Silver at NeurIPS. And I said, oh, you know, it took 47 days on all the computers that Google owns. <laughs> so, oh, you can find a needle in a haystack. Pretty, <laughs> you know. um, but, uh, I mean, so it was exciting because I thought that would mean there'd be funding for all sorts of fun research in RL. But I found that hasn't been the case so far. But I'm hopeful that the fact that so many people are jumping into RL will expand the field and there won't be just two algorithms. I mean, right now, there's like these two approaches. 
um, and it's it's not a big enough set of tools. We need you know way more diverse uh, ways of thinking about what is RL. So a control theorist usually looks at about designing decision rules by modeling, like I said, a simple model of the system, and then extracting decision rules from that model. And to me, reinforcement learning is just skipping that step. You just take input-output measurements of a system and synthesize a decision rule without any system identification. That's the definition almost. It's, nah, we, can, <laughs> we don't have to be so extreme. You know, we can put everything together, all the information we have about the system model and input-output you know, observations, take all the wonderful concepts from reinforced millennium and control, put them together, and come up with something much, much better than either domain. So that's what might the dream, and we'll see. <laughs> I mean, this is serving me an assist about um, the future of the field. So in your mm -hmm. book, you write, the field is young and its future may look something like the dream you had in mind before you read this preface, <laughs> which is fantastic. I mean, it's beautiful. <laughs> And you, you also write, I hope that in the near future we will discover new paradigms for RL, perhaps uh, drawing inspiration from intelligent living beings rather than optimality equations from the past century. <laughs> I have confidence that the fundamental principles in this book will remain valuable without the shackles of the optimal control paradigm. It's, it's beautiful. Wait, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, oh, yeah, where is the field at oh, the intersection so of RL and control it's going? It's such a shackle. You see, the reason that we optimize is so we we have ha having a sim single objective. You know, it's elegant, right? And then we get optimality equations we can try to solve. But there's nothing. The reality doesn't isn't like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, we we can be much more flexible. It would be so beautiful if we could forget about optimizing and then get decision rules that have good properties, a whole bunch of good properties. You know, we want cheapness and we want, you know, um, I don't know. Anyway, everything's multi-objective. And you'd think that by relaxing our goals, it'd make things easier. We just haven't figured out how to do that yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am personally yeah. thrilled about the biological connections. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily something that we have to talk about, but yeah. I find it a very interesting and promising avenue yeah. of research. I yeah. mean, even here at ETH, yeah. uh, people are developing PID controllers for <laughs> cellular systems effectively, yeah. which is fantastic. And I mean, the future is bright. Well, that's a good, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned PID, because that's such a good example where you can, you just have a really simple decision, rule in quotes. Yeah, and exactly. And it's, it's got a few parameters that are very, very well understood. And But we, of course, we need a, a richer set of tools. You know, that's yes. A, yeah. What would be, let's say, the low-hanging fruits that you see at the intersection of RL and control? Well, number one is what people are recognizing, is that, I mean, I mean, got some wonderful examples meeting with students at ETH that, you know, you do your system identification as well as you can, and you use RL for, for just sort of refining what you already understand. That's low-hanging fruit. It's going to have huge impact practically. It's hard to get the mathematical beauty. It's often in practical engineering. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing. So in RL, the black box way of thinking you get this beautiful mathematics and incredible solutions, and you'll get some sort of Nobel Prize in RL. <laughs> but, what would that be, actually? I, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, just even just some spotlight lecture is a Nobel Prize. But mm -hmm. instead of taking 47 days, oh, there was an example of snooker with, you, uh -huh. know, you know. So if you did a black box approach, it might take, you know, 47 days on Google supercomputers. But if you put in some physics, we could probably get a really awesome solution in an hour on a laptop. Because <laughs> we, we don't have such a big... Actually. It really is to me. I mean, I saw this just very simple explanation of how they were pursuing snooker at yeah. uh, you know, John Lagaris, and I forgot his, name, his student's name. And it seems just, just right. I mean, I just... You know. <laughs> and they're going to... But they'll use all the, the cool tools from RL and combine them with tools, you know, physics and, and automatic control. And uh, the mixture, you know, that's a low-hanging fruit, I guess. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this yeah. is actually connecting to yeah. one of the questions that I get from the audience. Mm -hmm. There's an part. audience. Yeah, yeah, there oh. is an audience. Mm -hmm. uh, there. <laughs> I mean, we do get emails from our email. 
actually, you guys, well, you, if you ended up here, you know about the website www.incontrolpodcast.com, hmm. but feel free to <laughs> always hit like, we need them. So from the audience, we get this question. They say, what are the main challenges with getting traditional performance guarantees in machine learning algorithms? And what pathways do you see going forward? Which is, from my understanding, exactly what you're, you were talking about. Boy, so, okay, so I challenge you all in computer science <laughs> to, to just take a five-state Markov chain and look at the sample path average and send me a finite inbound on the error between your estimate of the mean and the mean, okay? <laughs> and many will say, oh, it's a special gap. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. And I, I, please just go read Peter Glenn's book and his paper on Huffington's bounds for Markov chains. The bounds are worthless, you know? And uh, they really are. And then that's a simple thing of just averaging a bunch of random variables. When you look at some monster algorithm, like Q-learning, you know, whatever. It's so much more complex in simulation. So I know that there's lots of success stories in finite inbounds, performance bounds, but all of them are based on setting up the problem so that the noise is white. And then, yes, there's lots of tools for getting bounds, but in real life, it's not white. You it's know? never white, <laughs> it's not. is it? And then you just don't have any tools. And so that's why I've pushed asymptotic statistics which is what they do in simulation as well. So again, if you look at Peter Glenn's and Asmussen's book on simulation, you'll see the emphasis is on the central limit theorem, which is mm -hmm. asymptotic. But then in practice, it's quite finite n. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do a thousand independent runs, you construct a histogram, you get an estimate of the variance, and then you get an approximate confidence interval. I mean, that's, I think, all I can hope for. In my lifetime, I don't think there'll be new theory that's going to handle, you know, to do any better. If, if performance bounds mean meaning performance bounds of the algorithm, like when is it finished, converged? I think we learn from simulation theory. They know what they're doing. And the same tools that they use, we should use. Um, in terms of performance bounds for a given decision rule, boy, is that important. Because you can imagine if you could quickly evaluate a policy, a decision rule, um, we could do a lot less learning. You know, we could just take a crappy algorithm take the sample 100 different decision rules that come out of it, pick the best, and walk home. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an incredibly important area we should put more time into. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on, we probably get into less technical ground, mm -hmm. but still potentially geeky. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm curious, what's your favorite theorem in uh, ML optimization control? Oh my God. You're not allowed to choose the Borkelmein theorem. No, 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 of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, within RL, there's no question. It's the interpretation of what's called TD1 learning as an optimal projection, this unbelievably beautiful result. And by itself, basically, it solves an L2 approximation problem between a value function and approximations in a linear class. That on its own is just a pretty result. But then the way that flows into what's called actor-critic methods in you know a Condit's thesis, it's breathtaking. I mean, it really is. <laughs> and again, Peter Glenn has something to do with that too. I mean, it was his work on and representing variances of expectations, uh, um, loss functions, that fed into work with Conda and led to this elegant theory. I don't know if it's practical or not. I can't get it to work. <laughs> but, it doesn't matter. But, but the it's just a, ma a matter of personal taste. Absolute elegant theory. I just. I am personally yeah. not aware of that. I'll dig it yeah. up and definitely put a link in the well, description. It, it, what's the last chapter of my new book? Okay. It, the whole purpose of that chapter. I saw it, the section on it, projections, and I was yeah, wondering. Yeah, no, it's absolutely amazing. The whole chapter is meant to explain that theory. Very, very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay, and I guess not many people in the audience know that you are an accomplished beekeeper. <laughs> so in doing some research again for this podcast, I learned many things about bees. Well, first of all, that they have five eyes. Mm -hmm. They can fly up to 15 miles per hour. And male bees are in the hive are called drones, uh, mm -hmm. which I suppose is where we 
and get the name of drones themselves, maybe. Uh-huh. Yep. And finally, that fermented honey, known as med, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, oh, is the mead, most... Yeah. Mead, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> is the most ancient fermented beverage. I can believe that. Yeah. And the term honeymoon originates with the Norse practice of consuming large quantities of meat during the first month of a marriage. Wow, I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> no, but maybe you can tell us, how did you get into this? Oh, this is fun. So, I mean, you know, 10 years ago, I moved to Florida and everyone laughed at me. You know, everyone laughed at me. What are Why, you it seems doing? Such a sensible decision. I remember, I remember Andrea Goldsmith calling me up, Sean, you know, don't do it. You know, you'll, you'll never have another grad student. <laughs> and of course, I was scared of Florida because of politics. But we're not supposed to talk about politics. But, uh, <laughs> but it turned out I moved to an absolute paradise. I mean, Gainesville, Florida, the nature is amazing. And the student culture and all that, it's just incredible. The first thing I did is planted fruit trees like mad. I planted tangerines and fig trees and, you know, everything. And then there were bees everywhere. And then it took me a year to realize the bees were living in my pool house. (laughs) And so every spring, there'd be this beautiful wall of bees that would come out and feed on the tangerine blossoms and all that. And that went on just every spring, watching the bees come out and, and do their thing. And then my daughters and another good friend of mine in Austin we all were really excited about this and sort of convinced me to actually get serious and tell the bees to move out of the house. <laughs> so this is very recent, but I actually built beehives and you know platforms for them and moved the bees and started taking classes and all that. Is there <laughs> so, a way yeah. where in which you can use your knowledge of control to, That's, <laughs> to I'm make the bees That's right. <laughs> do what you want them to do? Oh my God, no, bees aren't very controllable, boy. They're, they're amazing, though. The way they communicate is unreal. It's, I mean, there's fantastic work on, on this, actually, from uh-huh. Naomi Leonard at uh-huh. Princeton. Uh-huh. And she worked on so many cool things about pattern formations, for example, in hives yeah. and so many other very cool things. And I wonder whether... Yeah, that can be applied at the moment in practice. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious. No idea. <laughs> but watching them, it's incredible how they communicate. You know, have one bee, you can see him sitting there and, and talking to one bee after another goes off. You know, it's, it's, it's as if there's like, I mean, the, the bees have different roles, but I've just watched one bee just sitting at a hole and every bee that comes through that hole first talks to the little bee and then goes off. And Wonderful. what are they, you know, what are they doing? And I know that their pheromones are very powerful because I know that when I upset them, I get a sting and they all cover me up and oh, wow. <laughs> attack. Well, so you direct the attack. They, 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 their pheromones are really powerful. It happened twice when I was, I was rude. It was my fault both times. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah. okay, another hobby I know that you have is uh, jazz. Right. Well, yeah. Well, music. Yeah. <laughs> so, what kind of jazz person are you? Who are your favorite jazz musicians? Well, of course. I mean, everyone you know has to say Coltrane and Miles Davis. I mean, yeah, I, I was about. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that is obvious. I would <laughs> yeah, say. that's obvious. I mean, it's just, uh, and I'm sad that Miles was not very nice. But I'm sorry. I, I will always love Miles Davis and just ignore <laughs> ignore that. But the other thing is, of course, Jesus, go to New Orleans and go to Frenchman Street, and I, I just want to live there. <laughs> it's just. It's incredible. The, uh, and the you pa- mentioned that you just found paradise in Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was, it's another type of musical paradise, I would say. Well, yeah, what's great is the one good thing about Bolsonaro in Brazil is that all these great musicians left and they've come to all over the place, including Gainesville. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> we have these incredible jazz musicians in Gainesville, Florida. <laughs> I know it's sad. Okay, it's cynical humor, but. Uh, <laughs> Like Pameli Marathon, if you're listening, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, maybe in closing, I have a couple of other questions and then maybe we can uh, close it here. But one nice question that I like to ask to our guests is about future students. Mm -hmm. So the question I've already asked to many is, if you were a student today, Mm. what would you do and what would you invest on in order to live a life that you're proud of? Wow. You know, many, many students actually come potentially to this podcast in order to find inspiration from people that have been students before. And so what would be your thoughts on this? Wow, it's so hard, isn't it? Because of course you want to follow your heart, but you have to learn so much before doing that. There's such a balance. You have to, you know, read and read and read as much as you can. 
but that can also completely destroy your creativity. So there's a balance. You've got to read with a critical eye, which is hard when you're young, because there's so much dogma. Just remember that when you're reading, that when they say this is the problem, maybe it's not. <laughs> so you can't be cynical, but you just have to have an open mind and keep that young mind. But please try not to be too influenced by the culture and try to break out of it. You, know? <laughs> you can't go too far, otherwise you're isolated, but you have to somehow... So be rebellious. <laughs> be a that's bit, be a that's bit the message. Be rebellious, but you know, it can kill you too. <laughs> it's hard. You know? That's a question I can't answer, really. Speaking personally, I was very passionate about like Margaret processes and all sorts of concepts that pushed me and was completely naive, didn't think about tenure. And I wouldn't have got it, I don't think, if it wasn't for getting an award for that book. And so you could say I was incredibly reckless, you know, because I just followed my heart too much. <laughs> but the thing is, it was maybe not just luck. I mean, I, the fact that I went so deep into one topic, I mean, I wouldn't have gotten the award if, if I hadn't. But that's not fair. One award is between getting tenure and not, you know. <laughs> that's life, I guess. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty and risk in life. And be reckless. All right, I'll, I'll stick with that. <laughs> when in doubt, be reckless. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and maybe the last question I'm going to ask you is, who were the influential figures that inspired your research? I should have asked you this uh, possibly at the beginning, but I'm going to yeah. ask it at the end. If you were to name three people, uh, who would they be? Oh, wow. I mean, uh, okay, three people inspired my research. I mean, of course, number one is John Tsitsiklas. I mean, there's just no question. He's just uh, been an absolute inspiration. And, Why? Uh, well, boy, his creativity is amazing. You know, he comes into all these different areas and, you know, comes up with some really elegant solutions and analysis, and then he just flights off to something else like a butterfly. <laughs> just... <laughs> really remarkable. And in, in RL, it just, he's the one that got me excited about reinforcement learning. So first we have Ek Borkar, who's an absolute inspiration. Just another scholar that's just, you know, knows about, you can ask about anything and he can tell you and, and recite poetry at the same time, the real poetry. But actually I have to include him too. So even though he's sort of a peer, I mean, boy, did he inspire me in terms of his elegant work in RL and, and so forth. Um, yeah, it's hard to be honest, you know, because... Um, a lot of the heroes, I don't know them as well as I should. You know, Carl Ostrom, I'm not going to do three. I mean, Carl Ostrom just has made me love my field so much because he's such a beautiful communicator. And he's done some, but I don't know his work as well as I should. Varadhan, you know, the amazing probabilist, absolutely inspired me. Just made me want to learn about large deviations just for its own sake. But I don't know his work as deeply as I should. So I've got to be honest that, you know, some of these heroes just inspired me because of a few beautiful ideas. And I... Yeah, But it's yeah. it's always true that we never yeah. know as much as we would like to know. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe this is a good time to close the episode. It mm -hmm. was a blast to <laughs> chat with you. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you liked the show today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, support on Patreon or PayPal, and connect with us on social media platforms. See you next time. <laughs>